A journalist's first task is to report what happened. That, as far as I'm concerned, is what a memoirist needs to do. It's the memoirist's principal goal. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Katie Hafner, author of the memoir Mother, Daughter, Me. Katie is also an accomplished journalist, having written for the New York Times since 1991, as well as for Newsweek, Esquire, Wired, and The New Republic. We talked about how her background in journalism has aided her in writing a difficult memoir, and what it's like to grapple with the truth in these disparate genres. We also went back and forth about our favorite memoirs and the writers behind them, so you may want to take some notes as you're sure to pick up a few gems. With no further ado, here's my conversation with Katie Hafner. Katie Hafner, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Sam, thanks so much for having me. You are the author of the memoir Mother, Daughter, Me, amongst several other books, including Cyberpunk, Where Wizards Stay Up Late, The House at the Bridge, A Story of Modern Germany, A Romance on Three Legs, and you're also a journalist, having written for many magazines and for the New York Times, so you're really all over the place as a writer. I love both long form, short form, and everything in between. The most fun I have is when people have never been to Esalen. So I say, the first day I say, oh, who's never been to Esalen? And a few people raise their hands and I say, this is the perfect place for you because it's against this backdrop of tremendous beauty, but there's also this vibe about the place that stretches back many, many decades. So it's a nourishing place. And the other thing I say to people is this workshop is your very safe place. So I also say I'm not a therapist, you know, I'm sure you can find some of that around here somewhere, but you're going to learn to write through whatever you need to, to work through. You're going to do it through writing and not bad writing, good writing. And we do a lot of talking about good writing. Uh, every uh, morning we do x-ray reading, which means I take one passage that fits on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Could be some of my favorites are these two famous paragraphs that Kafka wrote called Up in the Gallery. Um, and we dissect it. That's why I call it x-ray reading. We do Joan Didion, a lot of Philip Roth, his memoir, Patrimonial. Uh, I love I that book. One of my favorite memoirs. Love that book. Okay, you. My tell favorite me, Roth book. You tell me, me, me too. Mine too. You By tell, a long shot. Tell me why you like it so much. Hmm. Well, it's literate without being showy in, in any sense. You Roth is not a writer who emotion is 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 always accessible, but in this book, it is constantly accessible in. In a, in a complex way. And he has a complex relationship with his father that's sweetened by mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. them spending the, the end of his life together. Exactly. And it's important. And the, not only is it a great book, but it's a, it's a fine example of memoir versus autobiography. Tell me about that. Autobiography is basically you're, you are telling your life from, you know, your first memory to your last, uh, usually done at the end of a famous person's life. Like if you're Winston Churchill or Bill Clinton, 
hey, you get to write an autobiography because you're famous and people care. A great autobiography that I use as as an example is um, Catherine Graham, Kay Graham, who has since died and used to own the Washington Post. Mm. Beautifully done. She did it herself. No ghostwriter. Quite amazing. Michelle Obama, same thing. Um, That's an autobiography. Memoir, on the other hand, is what you just pointed out about Roth. Philip Roth with Patrimony, and it's a slice of life. It's an event or a period in your time, in your in your life, where something happened. In this case, Patrimony, Philip Roth's book. It's about his father at the end of his father's life, fail, getting sick, failing, and dying. And it's a short book, and that's all it is. Roth doesn't go into anything else really. But he goes into everything else, if you know what I mean. Tell me just a little bit about Mother, Daughter, Me and some of the challenges that were inherent in writing this this memoir that included your mother. I uh, lost my husband. My husband died in 2002. Our daughter was eight years old. We had grown up together in Amherst, Massachusetts, and our daughter was everything to us, and he was everything to my daughter and me. Zoe was uh, 15, and my mother was having a rough time in San Diego. Zoe and I were in San Francisco, and so I brought her up to live in San Francisco with Zoe and me, thinking, oh, great, wonderful. We kind of jokingly called it our year in Provence, which it was not. It ended up being a disaster because my mother didn't raise me. I was taken away from her when I was 10. It was really just about buying into a total ridiculous fantasy of a fairy tale life together under one roof, three generations under one roof. It ended badly. Uh, People in the workshop appreciate the book a lot because there's a lot of rawness Mm -hmm. between adult children and their aging parents. And that book goes into it in a really big way. One of the big questions I ask in the book is, what do we owe our parents as they age? At what point during this time that you spent with your mother did you decide, "Hmm, maybe I could write a book? And this was about eight hours into it. I thought, okay, I mean, she was already driving me out of my mind. And I realized I didn't really know her. Again, she didn't raise me. So I thought either I am going to kill myself or figuratively, not literally, or I'm going to write, write my way through this. So I called my agent and I said, I've got this book idea for you living with my mother. And he said, oh, that sounds interesting. I said, well, actually, I woke up in the middle of the night and I I wrote 10 pages (laughs) and I've never, I'm a really slow writer. I'd never write that fast. And he said, really? Okay, I'll read it over the weekend. I guess it was a Tuesday. I said, no, read it now. He read it and he, he called me right back. He said, wow, this is really good. I said, yeah, uh, I think this is what I need to be doing right now. Amazingly, 12 publishers wanted it. I didn't even know there were still 12 publishers in business and um, Random House took it. Did they want it after reading a partial or they had read the whole No, they read those 10 pages. I know. That must have been some serious pages. That was some serious writing. Yeah. One of my teachers, Ann Randolph, has a wonderful quote, Mm. who needs to die for you to be able to write your memoir? And in your case, it was nobody. You were willing to share this book with your mother. I told her that I was writing it. She said two things to me. Write what you want, and I won't read it. And that was really liberating. However, Anne's absolutely right. 
I, I ended up writing something that she took great offense at, which is the entire book. And it, and it didn't end well. Anne's right. It's a, it's a very, very delicate thing. Oh, it's so delicate. Well, I think about documentary film too, which I think about as a cousin of, of memoir. Really, if you investigate documentaries, the best scenes are the ones where the camera should not be there. Right. And you really wonder what the subject was thinking in letting the camera in. Yeah. And there's there's memoirs. I'm trying to think if there's a memoir that that uh, is like this, which I feel like an inappropriate memoir, which I've really enjoyed. I had a little list of some of my of favorites. inappropriate memoirs <laughs> where it's like, oh, I can't believe that you're writing about this because you're driven by some sort of raw honesty coming out of you. So she didn't keep her promise. She, she, she did, decided to read it. She did not. She At decided what point to was, read it, it. was it in stores? Oh, it got me? really ugly, including Random House's lawyers. So, um, so it was before it was published. It was before it was published. That actually drove me to fiction. <laughs> really, truly. The next book was fiction. The next book. I mean, I still do my stuff for the New York Times. Um, I used to write about technology for them. Now I write about healthcare um, and the older po- and older adults. But I do a lot of obituaries and advance obituaries. That's and, my parents' uh, favorite part of the New York Times. Yeah, it's a really wonderful. It's a total honor, especially doing the advance obits where you interview the subject. I do. Not all advance obit writers interview the subject beforehand, but I do. I call them and I tell them what I'm up to. And, you know, I feel sometimes like the the Grim Reaper knocking at the door, but eventually they sort of warm up to it. And um, the other thing I give them is anything they want to tell me that's embargoed until after they die. So uh, the Times then has these obits in the in the can, so to speak, and keep them under. Uh, the editor keeps them under lock and seal, and the subjects can't see them, obviously, um, before they run and when they run. So anyway, I love that part of of what I do. But in the middle of all of that, I decided to write a novel. Uh, my agent has it out with publishers now, and I just am so I love writing fiction. And and then now I'm working on um, kind of a memoir about um, it's about uh, you're gonna laugh because we're at Esalen. It's about <laughs> taking up golf at an older age oh. to spend more time with my husband. I'm a tennis player, and um, and somehow I feel like I've really hit my stride as a writer, not as a golfer, but definitely as a writer. It's a very funny take on this world that I absolutely loathed and despised. Then I met this man I'm married to now about 10 years ago. And when he said he was a golfer, I said, oh my gosh, how do I get out of this? Michael Murphy says golf is a mystery school for Republicans. A mystery school for what does that mean? Well, his whole thing is that um, sports constitutes an arena uh, by which one can access the divine and whatnot. And he says that miracles are happening on golf courses at all moments. And uh, yeah, the people who are playing on golf courses are, for the most part, conservatives. They are, for the most part, conservatives. They um, smoke cigars. They mm-hmm. uh, are incredible. They're men. Let's can we just say what they are? Men, Who white are men, white, I, white men walking is what I say. Uh-huh. And uh, I've got to tell you though, Sam, that game, it is, it is 
Do you play? Something about it. No, I hit a golf ball last year when I was hanging out with some friends. And they, um, <laughs> well, good thing you hit yeah, it. I hit it pretty far. <laughs> but otherwise, no. It is. A, it is. An, it's a surprisingly meditative sport. Um, so maybe Eslin should put in a little nine hole. Yeah. Read, uh, read uh, Michael's book, Golf in the Kingdom. Yeah. He has written the best-selling That's fiction right. book about golf that in the history absolutely of right. literature. Uh-huh. So let's talk about truth versus fiction, you know, kind of a little segue from you having written fiction and having written memoir and being a journalist. Let's talk dialogue for the, for the, at, at first, because to me, dialogue is the engine that, that drives my reading. And when I see a, a memoir that's chock full of dialogue, I think two things. Number one, I'm going to read this. Number two, this is probably not true. Well, let's, let's unpack what you just said. Um, you're going to read it. What is it that makes you want to read it? Yeah, it's so much easier for me to read dialogue than to read long uh, paragraphs, which are descriptive. And when you say it's probably not true, I think what you mean to say is these words were probably not said exactly as the as the writer. For Precisely. Instance, it's not verbatim. It's, it's recreated. Not, it's recreated. In fact, I'm reviewing a book now about a, an amazing book, really, um, about uh, written. It's a memoir written by a neurosurgeon who's deeply Christian. And he is fast and loose with that dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I have exactly the same reaction when I read memoirs that I think, wait a minute. What makes you think, think we think that we believe those were the words spoken? However, what I do say to people, and so I'm very careful in Mother, Daughter, Me, I was very careful. Uh, in fact, I reported the whole book as I was living it. It was sort of a book written in real time. Mm. So I would sit there at the kitchen table and sort of type um, verbatim what Brilliant. everybody was saying. Brilliant. But my memories, so the book toggles between present and then when I was a kid, I really don't recreate conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, how do memoirists really remember what was what they said at age five or what their parents said or what the what the teacher said? Or well, I've always thought that there is poetic license right. that goes into books. Um, I don't know if you've ever read a book that came out about 10 or 15 years ago called Running with Scissors yes, by Augustine yes. Burroughs. Yeah, he grew up in Amherst, yeah. As I remember, it's dialogue rich mm-hmm. and, and quite clever. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I'm reading it and thinking, what? Are you sure that that happened in such right. a succinct and, and, right. and brilliant way? <laughs> I know, right. But I, did, I didn't mind, really. It's sort no. of like I, I give that, that writer license, and I realize that I'm reading something that's close to the truth. Why does, it, why does it matter to me that it's precisely the truth? So this is what I say to people who, want, who come to the workshop, and they wonder about this very thing. And I say, listen, because I was talking to my editor at Random House, I had never written a memoir, and she had edited many of them. And I said, you know, this scene actually didn't take place at such and such a time, but I want to put it into that time in the book because it makes it all flow better. And she said, Katie, and these are wonderful words of wisdom. She said, as long as you are not violating an essential truth, yeah, then it's fine. And I'm a journalist. I mean, I, I can, I'll stay up at night worried that I got someone's name spelled wrong, which is completely different yeah. from capturing the essence of an event, a feeling, an interaction. Does that make sense to you? No, I, I want to talk more about uh, just 
this opposition of journalism and memoir and, and how have your journalistic skills, I mean, wonderful example that, you, that you're telling me about actually writing things down verbatim as they happen in real life. Like, that's a great idea. But how has your background in journalism allowed you to, uh, to work in memoir in a free way? A journalist's first task is to report what happened. Mm. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is what a memoirist needs to do. It's the memoirist's principal goal. Let's, let's have some fun. I'm going to throw a memoir at you, tell you why I love it, and then you throw one back at me. Oh. All right. If I can think. So I have so many that I love. I'm going to start with Just Kids by Patti Smith. Love it. I do sort of love it. Okay. I'll tell you why I love it. There's, it's very succinct and poetic, and it concentrates on a short period of time. Exactly what we were saying. I like that about a memoir. Um, so I'm going to throw back less less prominent memoirs back at you because I want the listeners to um, discover these people who might be slightly lesser. That sounds fair. One that you might not know because it's a little obscure, um, called Playing Scared, about a a pianist with stage fright, and I can't think of the author, but I love it. Uh, She does what I love in a memoir, which is that she, she writes about herself and how scared she is to perform on the piano. And she's a wonderful pianist, by the way. And then she branches out to write about the history of people with stage fright. Yes. Isn't that great? So something that's unexpected. Yes. Something unexpected. How about uh, If This Is a Man by Primo Levi also, and The oh. Truce, which is in the same volume? Love, love, love. Anything Primo Levi Maybe the ever best. wrote. Um, my favorite book of his is Survival in Auschwitz. Which is an alternate title for If This Is a Man, I think. Yes. I've seen it and under both names. Yes, exactly. The reason I love that one so much is because I'm Jewish and grew up surrounded by Holocaust awareness. Now, Primo Levi's attitude towards uh, the Holocaust that he went through and If This Is a Man is more clinical. It's very clinical, which is what makes it so powerful. Yeah. I mean, he has some passages in there where he talks about just what it took to not die. But he does it very clinically, right? I mean, it's been a long time since I've read it, but I know a lot's been written about Primo Levi, but do you think that part of it had to do with the fact that he was a scientist, that he was able to stand back and write clinically? Mm, Absolutely. Definitely. Do you think he killed himself? Because that's also controversial. Uh, I don't know. I didn't even... So he either threw himself down a flight of stairs or fell down a flight of stairs in Italy, in Turin, uh, where he lived. Amazing writer. And can I throw one at you? Time for it. Um, (laughs) uh, Joan Didion, Year of Magical Thinking. Uh, which is a lot like uh, we just read a passage in in the workshop this afternoon, uh, this morning. Also very clinical, but she also writes in uh, she can write in very simple declarative sentences, which I think is quite beautiful. Um, and what's interesting about that memoir is that she wrote it so soon after her husband died. Oh very soon after her husband died. So it's as raw as it's going to get, and it's also clinical at the same time. What book is she famous for writing in the 1970s? She wrote Slouching Towards Bethlehem and um, The White Album. Um, And I teach a lot of Didion in this workshop. We do a lot of Didion. She's, There's no no one like her. No, that's true. Junkie 
by William Burroughs. To me, the I have never read that. The great book, the only book I've ever gotten through with Burroughs. It's so unlike Naked Lunch. It, that book is like, yeah, he was really high when he was writing this, or he was just <laughs> doing whatever he wanted and, you know, engaging in his kind of cut up way of writing where he took, you know, clips from one sentences and attached them to the, to other sentences. Junkie is a younger man, uh, writing in a more straightforward way, uh, about his heroin addiction. So good. You know, I'm a little, I, I don't, I don't really go for the heroin addicts. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's my shortcoming. Definitely but. not your shortcoming. <laughs> <laughs> Just not my cup of tea, I guess. But there's a, that's the whole subgenre of, it is. of memoir, heroin memoir. I know, memoir. heroin memoir. In fact, the one that I should read um, by the late David Carr is apparently an absolutely beautiful book that I've never read, and it makes me think I should go back and read it. Heroin is almost a literary device because it shows, in memoir, because it shows that this person has come to the edge of something and then, in a hero's journey type of way, sort of beat beat it back. And that's almost, you know, giving them license to, to write this book because it, isn't there some sort of license that, that we need? We need to have, have validation that the story is big enough for a book. And that's exactly what I object to. It's like, why... Should we have to have gone to the edge of a heroin addiction? Why can't we have gone to the edge of, you know, a fear of elevators? I I don't know. It's like, um, in fact, someone was talking recently about um, how the William Sean, who used to be editor of The New Yorker, was deathly afraid of elevators. And I thought, what a thing, poor man. And yet... No one would consider that to be memoir worthy, but if you're a heroin addict, which seems to me, I don't know, I just, I, ha- I just don't have that much patience for it. I like that. So uh, your turn. Give me a couple. We'll go back and forth one or two more times. I have two favorites by someone who's actually better known as a fiction writer. I don't know if you've ever read Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. No. Um, wonderful book. That's a that is a novel, and it's great. He's a physician. It was on the Times bestseller list forever, and unlike many books on the Times bestseller list, it really deserved to be there. He wrote two memoirs. One is called The Tennis Partner, about um, when he was a a physician in El Paso and his, his relationship with a trainee. And I won't tell you any more than that, but it's beautifully written. And this, the other book he wrote, which was his first memoir, is called My Own Country, which is about his living in eastern Tennessee and treating AIDS patients during the very first wave of AIDS when young men would come home to Tennessee from New York and San Francisco to die. And that is a beautiful book. That sounds powerful. Yeah. In a word, yes. Powerful. Two words. I thought of a a good example of something that we were talking about earlier, the inappropriate memoir. Um, I would say uh, (laughs) Charles Bukowski, Ham on Rye. I don't know it. (laughs) I love how different we are. You like all these sort of out there. Yeah, Yeah. like the muscular type of... Muscular memoirs. Oh, I love that. Is that a genre, muscular memoirs? Well, grit lit is a a genre that I've been kind of like dipping my my toe into with uh, Harry Cruz. Anyway, Ham on Rye is just... He's a terrible person. 
Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Bukowski never tried to be a, a good person at all. Right. And the kind and of, never pretended to be. No. no. The, he had a you know extremely tough childhood, but you know he leads to this wonderfully inappropriate incredibly disgustingly honest writing. So I like that book and Post Office by him is also a great mm-hmm. book. What did you read Born a Crime by Trevor Noah? Oh, I love Trevor Noah and I heard him interviewed on Terry Gross about that book. Tell me more about that book. I haven't read it. Well, it's I, what I feel is the, the rarest of memoir, which is celebrity memoir, mm-hmm. which is also super literate. Right. Like Michelle Obama just saying she's quite the writer. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, Trevor Noah talks about growing up in South Africa. Yes. The, the book is born a crime because his parents were of two different races. So when... It was illegal for them to be together, so he was born a crime. And the writing's good. Writing is great. I don't know whether he had a a ghost or an editor, but I I tend to believe he probably wrote it himself because he's Mm -hmm. he's just so articulate and funny. Nice. I tend to think that about Michelle Obama, too. I I believe she wrote her own. Um, It's always nice to think when someone's super famous. She's also absolutely brilliant. So It's been fun kind of batting these back and forth. We could do one or two rounds of worst memoirs ever, or worst genre of memoir. Well, as you can tell, I do not love the I was a drug addict and now I'm better and go me. (laughs) Although, now I'm going to contradict myself entirely. Maybe it's just that's not my drug because alcohol, um, I love Mary Carr's book Lit. Mm. Um, Love that memoir. What, What is that about? It's about being an alcoholic, (laughs) just flaming out. But she's such a beautiful, funny, biting writer. And um, the other alcohol memoir uh, that I love, and I love it that you and I is like, you've got a lot of these men and I'm usually women, um, is a a book called Drinking a Love Story by Caroline Knapp. Mm. And that is just a beautiful book. I highly recommend it for anyone who um, is either a recovering alcoholic or has someone close to them who is an alcoholic. That is, uh, that's quite the book. Mm. What What is the one skill that aspiring writers need to hone in order to tap into this memoir or this project that is so important to them? They need to I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but they need to read other writers. I you, I read in order to write. And it's like filmmakers watch films. It kind of ruins it for them, I know, but they watch films in order to make films. Um, there's a wonderful book that I would like to recommend called um, Reading Like a Writer by Francine Prose. Every time I do this workshop... We have a Thursday night hootenanny, and um, and we do a um, we have uh, we play a game, and there are prizes. And one of the prizes I give is um, a copy of that book. Um, I buy a copy every year for for one of the students. Katie Hafner, this has been such a enjoyable conversation with you. Very wide ranging, informative. Everybody, go out and check out Katie's incredible books, including her memoir *Mother, Daughter, Me*. Check out *Where Wizards Stay Up Late*. Learn about the history of the internet. Read *A Romance on Three Legs*. Learn about Glenn Gould. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. 
Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 